All right, I want to welcome back uh, my first, second-time guest, Eric Fuller. Welcome back to the Business Fun Podcast. What's happening, Eric? Well, hey, how are you doing, Dave? It's always always fun to talk to you. Yeah, no, this uh, is fun. Lots. This is people seem to have dug the first one, so let's do it again. Well, you know, there's lots to talk about. It's an ever-evolving business. Well, so that's what makes it fun, right? Is like there's always something new for us to like pontificate on. <laughs> Well, I think we should jump right in and, and talk about what just happened uh, out here in California. We had two things at once. We had uh, uh, the World Series uh, games uh, 3, 4, and 5 at Dodger Stadium. And uh, we had uh, a very rare sports equinox in Los Angeles where on the same day we had football, basketball, baseball, soccer, hockey, and actually another hockey game even in Anaheim, and some people that actually made a run to do all of it. So, uh, you tell me which one you want to get with, and then we'll start this. Uh, we'll start this game off today strong. Well, let's talk. Let's start. Let's start with the fun stuff, right? Let's talk. I mean, let's talk about what was it? Seven games in, in LA in one day. Um, uh, it was six, six, six games. Six. Five in Los Angeles and and one in Anaheim. So you had in Anaheim the Ducks play. In Los Angeles, you had the Kings. So there's two hockey games. Yep. Then you had the L.A. Galaxy soccer, the Los Angeles Rams football. Um, you had the L.A. Clippers basketball. And then, of course, uh, they did what turned out to be the final game of the, the World Series at Dodger Stadium. And uh, I was surprised to see a lot of people actually make a run at at least the five events that took place in Los Angeles. Uh, Chris Saka and, uh, and his friends actually uh, looped in the one in uh, Anaheim as well, and, and did all six. And and that's fascinating, because if you think about the way that time and distance works and the cost of tickets, you can't actually be at any of those events for a meaningful period of time. It's a hit and run, just for the purpose of saying you did it. And it's it's a heavy ticket to buy all of those events and and you know show up for an inning or two innings. So uh, it says something about maybe why, in a bigger scheme of things, why people buy tickets to events instead of just clicking through ESPN channels one through infinity and and doing the Equinox on the sofa with a you know you know a two dollar beer uh, set from Costco. So you know, it, it talks to what motivates people to get out and go. Yeah, uh, I, mean, and, I mean, I did something very similar when I was younger, maybe. It was Easter Sunday, I want to say maybe 1997, 1998. And it was when spring training was still huge in Florida. And like most of the teams were still in Florida. And I think my friend and I, Ryan, we hit uh, seven or six or seven spring training games in one day because it was at a time when there was still a team in Pompano. Um, there was still a team in uh, Fort Lauderdale. There were still a, uh, two teams in West Palm, uh, Port St. Lucie, uh, and then you go across to the West Coast and you could hit one or two. And it, and it was, you know, it was not as much even about the event. It was like the fact you could do it. And I think that's what, what you know, you pointing out these, uh, the Equinox, it, it shows is that there's something to be said for the thrill of going and the thrill of saying you've been there. Even when it's something that's really, really um, far, far-fetched and kind of absurd, like what went on on Sunday. And, and, and here's the thing that I took away from it also that, 
you know, it's a little Easter egg in it for me. And it really surprised me. So, um, Chris Saka, for those of you that don't know, um, a pretty well uh, thought of early investor in uh, Uber and Twitter and, and, you know, a lot of big hits with his uh, in, uh, investment fund. He's um, known for I wearing Western shirts, right? That's He's the Western shirt. He always shirt. wears a cowboy shirt. He yeah. did a season on Shark Tank um, and then sort of removed himself from the whole world uh, for reasons that I, I don't think concern us now. But, but here's... Here's what, here was the takeaway that he put on Twitter. Ticketing apps need work. And I thought, wow, here's a guy that if you ever wanted to have five minutes with somebody about who, you know, who would know what something should work like on, on your cell phone or on the Internet, this is a guy that's been kind of right and early on some massive, massive stuff. And the guy and his buddies went to six events clearly bought some stuff through ticketing apps and thought it was kind of screwy. Now, he didn't detail what it was he didn't like about it, but the fact that he felt compelled to comment on Twitter not about the experience of the games, but the experience of the ticketing just struck me as emblematic of some of the things that you and I have discussed in the past and maybe some things that we can discuss today, which is, you know, as this market matures... Uh, you know, StubHub reported their, uh, eBay reported their third quarter earnings this week. StubHub uh, was up 6% over last year. They sold $1.237 billion worth of tickets. And their gross margin, the, the spread between the cost of what they paid the brokers for those tickets or the owners of the tickets, and, and what they collected is $286 million. Just StubHub. So, I mean, it's a massive marketplace. And it still seems to be uh, in hand-to-hand combat for combat for each incremental sale instead of trying to build any form of a customer relationship. Uh, and and that's why you see a comment like we saw from from Sarka. So you know here, here's your here's your your balancing skill, right? On, on one side, your your customers will go out and buy tickets to six different things the same day for an ungodly sum of money. And the takeaway is not the game, but the experience of buying the tickets. That should be like a Harvard Business School case study. What's wrong here? What's broken? How do we fix it? Yeah, and and that's sort of why I wanted to have you back because last time we, we you know we, we spent a lot of time talking you know about about Ticketmaster and you know some of the stuff that they're doing and then we talked about your experience just being really like getting involved in all this because you really care and you really like to go and we talked about what I you know that being sort of my background as well is the fact that I got involved in this stuff is because I just really love to go do stuff right and then and. I think what the big challenge is, is that, you know, and you've brought it up in several conversations that we've had in between the podcast over email on the internet, you know, and social media, you know, on the phone, whatever, about the need to think more about the customer, which is, I think, sort of becoming one of the themes that keeps coming up over and over and over again on the podcast. And what Chris Saka's experience really points out to is that, you know, he had a bad experience and that was the one thing he remembered or he Maybe he didn't remember it all, but that was the one thing he pointed out on social media about his experience going to six games in one day was that the ticket apps need to be better. Um, and I, I think right. anybody would really agree, agree with that because, I mean, how many times have I told the story of trying to go to a Nationals game with my son one time 
and the tickets.com uh, back end on their mobile site crashing on me over and over and over again to the point where I was like, when, um, we'll, we'll just go to like, we'll have lunch and we'll watch the game on the TV at, at your favorite place to, to go and watch the game. Right. And my son being really disappointed, but the thing was, it's like, it was such a, a mess that I was just so frustrated. I gave up. Right. And, and, mm-hmm. and that's me. I'm in, I mean, I'm in the business. I mean, I know the people at tickets.com. I can call them up. Right. Um, and, and, having that experience, if you're not somebody who's involved, it's probably even more frustrating, right? I mean, it's frustrating to me for different reasons than it would be frustrating for somebody like Chris Saka, who probably doesn't really necessarily understand the business. Um, And this is something you've been really focused on lately is the need to really focus on the customer relationship aspect much, much more. Um, You you know, and I think that um, the, the, the thing you highlight is really important in that context, because I think everybody's lost the narrative that without a customer, you don't have anything, right? I mean, I I feel repetitive when I say you have to have, your job is to create and keep customers. And it seems so much of the news that we've talked about and seen lately is that the trust between customer and company that is taking, you know, serving the customer is being broken over and over and over again. Um, You know, I'm interested to hear what your take is on this because you come at it from an entirely different point than I do. Well, I, I'm, I'm looking at two different things. And, and you know, I, I, I read a lot. I read extensively, not just in ticket area, but in, in, in all aspects of, of business and, and trend. And, and I think what I'm starting to come to the conclusion is that as a society, our expectation is instantaneous satisfaction with whatever it is we attempt to do. I'm, you know, I just got a new faster iPhone than the faster iPhone I bought a year ago because I, I just that 25th of a second that the lag makes me nuts as many times as I've got to do things. And I think that the customers as, as, you know, Amazon becomes more efficient as your ability to send banking, you know, money to your kid or your friend through Zelle becomes more efficient. You know, everything happens seamlessly and painlessly. And except we seem to be archaic in tickets. And and I understand there's, you know, security problems and selection problems, but there doesn't seem to be a lot of thought in the process other than how can we maximize the revenue in a single transaction? And that seems antithetical to what every other sustainable business model looks like, which is why I was really interested to see that Vivid Seats uh, just hired the, their new CEO out of Grubhub. Now, now, I don't know how you take a guy out of you know, a food delivery service and have him run what's arguably the third biggest ticket resale marketplace in the country. But it seems like that's going to be customer focus. And it seems like, you know, I've, all, I've long said, I think Vivid's got the best technology in the business. You know, they're hyper-focused on making sure their technology's good. But they seem to be the first guys that are making a jump towards the future of this business is in establishing a, a repeatable experience for the consumer so that you don't have to have a constant enormous customer acquisition budget to get back the same customer. Yeah. And that's really, that would be really wise because that's one of the, I mean, 
God, Lord knows I, I talk to people all the time about these things. I'm like, especially with, you know, if Vivid's doing it on a large scale, but I talk to the individual brokers, right, a lot of times. And I tell them, say, hey, look, I can't help you do anything because unless you're willing to grow and establish something that's developing a customer base for yourself, right? Because as long as you're dependent on a ticket network or a StubHub or a Vivid or any of the or Ticketmaster, any of these people to distribute everything and bring the customers to you, you're a commodity. You are, um, you you're just a middleman. And you know what? The middleman middlemen aren't really that valuable at this point. So you have to be focused on customer retention because getting customers is super super expensive, and keeping a customer is usually the best ex- money you can spend on marketing. You know, so that so I'm hopeful because I know that how much of a customer focus Grubhub had. Right. Well, I mean, I just I think it's you know the the other thing I've been thinking about is if you really break down. So if you look at if you look at this from an from an economic analysis, where is the leakage in the system, right? So you've got you've got these different buckets. You've got the the primary markets. You've got Live Nation. You've got uh, Access. You've got TicketFly and Eventbrite and you know SeatGeeky been maybe trying to climb in there a little bit. That that are they're becoming the the primary distributors of tickets. And and on an old model where you basically pay for the right to be able to ticket, all right? And so you're advancing capital in the front for the right to collect money on the back. And I'm not sure that that's a long-term sustainable model because capital's cheap, technology's cheap, and nobody has any uh, sustainable identifiable consumer models that that make their site necessarily that much stickier than anybody else's site that's selling the tickets that somebody wants to have, all right? So for high-demand events, I think it's conceivable that you're going to see the the, the ticketing being taken back by the, the artists and the promoters uh, into whatever fashion is most uh, profitable for them. You know, it wouldn't surprise me to see somebody that's been on the cutting edge of everything, like you know the the people behind Taylor Swift, who I've complained about what they did last time, try to redeem that calamity by just doing it themselves next time and subcontracting the the technical part of distributing the tickets. Um, it, it, I think that what you saw with with Event Select and the Dodgers uh, this year was a first step towards saying, uh, we don't need anybody else for a closed-loop ecosystem. Uh, it was a colossal fail, if you think about it, in that uh, you broke the relationship that the fans had with the team in a giant bet that you could make a massive cash grab uh, if you got to the playoffs in the series, which they did, and, and which they didn't. Uh, you, you saw uh, 7,500 unsold tickets Day of game. I mean, so you know, there's there's all kinds of testing going on about how can each individual player in this ecosystem maximize their take, event by event, show by show, uh, and 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 not a lot of thought about the value of the the consumer relationship that you acquire and maintain. But there's another player that you and I have never talked about, and I've really been spending some time thinking about them since we spoke last, and that's Google. 
And just like you're in the uh, in the business a long time, and I've been buying tickets for you know longer than I care to admit. And I've noticed recently, even I have a hard time, harder recently, figuring out what's the official box office and what's the not official box office. Because there are more and more slick ways that people are hijacking the name of the box office so that you think you have the right place, but you don't. And I think that Google is complicit in in creating this consumer confusion and and a great deal of the excess, you know, what think people think is profiteering is actually just the fees that all the competing players are paying to Google for placement to try and move tickets out. And, and what I don't understand with Google is that uh, at least at the broker conferences this year, they took a pretty aggressive position that we're going to start enforcing uh, you know, certain rules related to the resale of tickets, face value identification and in, in, in paid advertising for what the price is and it's you know similar things so that we aren't carrying deceptive uh, information across our platform to our consumers who are sticky. Google's consumers are Google's consumers. They're not on Bing and they're not on Alta Vista and they're not on you know, duck, duck, goose, and, 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 you know, they own 99.99% of the market because Google to date has had the reputation of being, you know, a, a fair uh, search site and the returns are fair. But if you, if you look at any major important event and just type the name of the event in there and then just look at the way that the URLs are populating to look like they're the official resale the official um, primary distributor when they're not. I think that that Google really might need to look internally and say, are we contributing to confusing our own uh, trusted relationship with the people that search us for valid information and, and selling out those people uh, so that we can get more AdWord revenue? And, and I think if you clean that up, um, then you're going to you're going to knock out a bunch of nonsense. You're going to have the the significant marketplaces easily identifiable, both primary and resale. And then you're going to probably see cleaner competition between them on service, because after all, tickets are commodity, and and they're sort of the same everywhere. You know, there is not a lot of variance between, as you and I know. You know the the tickets that are on the Ticket Network or StubHub or Ticketmaster Resale or or Vivid because it's the same pool of tickets uh, electronically pushed everywhere with you know slight variations. Yeah. So it, so that's sort of my my current thought process of of where there might be a giant hole that nobody's talking about. Well, the, the thing with Google is interesting because I mean I sat in at least three or four of these meetings with Google where they've talked about this stuff. And, and, and what they come back to is that they want to create, a, like you said, a cleaner marketplace for people to buy tickets, right? Which, you know, I, I applaud, right? Because I know that there are a lot, lots of people who uh, will use deception, right, uh, as a way to make a quick buck. You know, here today, gone tomorrow kind of operations. I know they exist. I mean, for me to pretend like it happens otherwise, would be I'd be lying to you. Um, but what they found too, I, and I know this, and they maybe won't aren't as willing to admit this publicly, um, and probably it's no secret why. But 
they found out how tough it is, right, to to try to rein it in. And I think that's where they're struggling. I mean, anybody who's reputable, right, like a Ticket Network or a StubHub or a uh, Vivid Seats or Ticketmaster, any of these people, they should be really, really uh, advocating and strong advocates for Google doing something, taking some, some of these actions. And I think probably one of the things that's really slowing down any kind of transformative action on, in a lot of ways about the, you know, the way that the entire digital ticket experience operates is because it's a financial incentive, right? There is no financial incentive. The, the system right now is working pretty well for everybody as far as them being able to maximize the revenue um, that they're generating, right? I mean, Google's making money hand over fist, right? A lot of these, um, uh, you know, nefarious secondary sites, they make, they make a lot of money and then they're gone, disappear, see ya. Right. I mean, that, you know, the, the, the system's broken, but it works for the, you know, for the people who are who are using it to hide to make money. Right. And I think that, unfortunately, we we still don't live in an environment where consumer rights are given this much. Uh, you know, they're still trying to be weakened, I guess, is the, the, the way the best way to put it. Right. Um, the A strong consumer advocate. Um, isn't something that the current administration in Washington has any um, inclination to to provide or help ensure or anything of the sort. And that's, I, so I don't know how quickly any of these actions are going to take place. But the looking at Google, I think, is a a, a place that a lot of people don't all, don't don't think to look. I think you're right there in, in pointing towards them. Well, look, I mean, obviously, I, I mean. Mick Mulvaney uh, at the Consumer Financial Protection Board's entire job is to make sure that that organization uh, doesn't function. I mean, that's just that's just emblematic of the current thought process of the of the Trump administration. You know, when you have a a major consumer protective arm of the government that submits a request of zero for its budget, it tells you the priority in the organization at this point in time. But but this is a more um, it's a bigger picture question. And the bigger question is, Google, if you look at their YouTube subsidiary, very efficiently automated the takedown of copyright infringing uh, product. I, I, they are not paying 100,000 people to look at every video that's posted to see what is infringing Saturday Night Live's copyrights. They just figured out a way to... to identified electronically by, you know, I don't know, probably recording everything that ever goes across the television uh, wires, and, and if it matches that, it's just gone. Um, and and I don't think it would really be a complicated project to say, here are the legitimate names of box offices across the country or legitimate primary market or legitimate secondary market sites and we have verified and validated those names and we carry them. But what I'm starting to see now is stuff that's like, you know, Bruno hyphen Mars hyphen Aloha Stadium hyphen box office hyphen. And so it, I mean, it, however, the guys that know how to do this stuff get it. So it's the number one return and the actual box office or whatever the, you know, Honolulu Stadium is, is number seven and Ticketmaster's number nine if they're the one vending that show. 
And so you've got people lost in this mix between speckers and, and fly-by-night sites, and, and nobody knows which is who. And it, it makes no sense. It's a, it's a, I don't know, eighteen or twenty billion dollar market in this country selling tickets to stuff, and we shouldn't have to have a war where guys that buy hundreds or thousands of tickets need eleven minutes to figure out which is the correct link in the first page returns on Google just to click in. I mean, that's nuts to me. It, it just makes absolutely no sense, and then it leads to other kinds of problems that. Uh, may result in a remedy being forced on the entire marketplace that doesn't help the marketplace. Right? I, I well, saw the most fascinating. That's thing. a lot. A lot okay. of the problem too is that, like, if if you aren't careful, right, there is a punitive uh, remedy that's put in place that really impacts. It doesn't impact the people who are uh, acting in bad faith, right? Because they they they're fly by night anyway. <laughs> Um, but it does hurt the people who have been doing playing by the rules and doing things the right way, and that, and that's always the problem, right? And, and that just seems to be the way like legislation is done, handled most of the time. It's like they get there too late, um, and then they they info, they offer up some kind of uh, remedy that is too little, too late, and usually punishes the people who didn't need to be punished to begin with. Right, but the, but the technology's there. Look, t- Twitter, you can be, you get a check mark if you're verified, right? Uh, I, I heard an ad this morning on speaking of Google. Google's running ads right now. If you're a veteran-owned business, we'll give you a red, white, and blue badge. I mean, you could badge the verified official sites, and you could not badge the other ones, and you could probably do a sort by verified. You know, I mean, none of this is complicated for people that have armies of programmers. But otherwise, you lead to the kind of confusion and nonsense that, that just makes people not go at all. And once you run your market off, you don't get it back. I don't think baseball gets its market back. I, I don't, you know, baseball, we talked about this last time. Baseball's attendance is down, and this, you know, way this World Series ticketing thing was handled it is going to teach people you know, pony up for the one game you want to go to for the series and don't go to the 82 home games because it's all about the series, right? And so why would you buy a season? And to me, that's the Um, biggest failing of baseball, right? Is that they have lost their ability to tell a story. Because to me, baseball was always a story, right? And it began with, you know, with spring training, right? Spring training was like that, the, the first pitch when you when I lived in New York City. I mean, it was splashed all over the front and back pages of the Post and the Daily News and Newsday, right? It was like almost like holiday level. Um, and somewhere over the last like 10 or 15 years, and I'm sure it started before then, they, they lost the narrative. They lost the romanticism of the game, you know, in – Part of it was like the fact that they just figured that, you know, people would come no matter what. And that's the way that it seems that they treated people. And then now the commissioner of baseball, it seems like to me, who's, who I don't think I watched one inning of baseball this season. Um, and I used to go to at least 25 games a year. Um, throws his hands up every time somebody goes, well, what are you guys doing to tackle this challenge? Or what are you guys doing? It, it, everything's like somebody else's problem, and he's just throwing his hands up. And I, I I, agree. I don't know that if something radical doesn't change, that they'd ever get their market back. Like, I mean, they, they're going to slip behind. I wouldn't be surprised to see them slip behind hockey and soccer as in, in popularity in the near term because – 
I mean, I've been to two hockey games. I mean, I've been more than two hockey and two soccer games in the past couple of weeks at DC United. And it's just way more fun, right? It's just way more engaging. Um, the people treat you like they want you to be there. Um, the last time I went to a baseball game, nobody gave a shit. It was nobody cared. It was like they couldn't, they could have cared less about me. Well, and, and, and you, know, you see that too with NBA, right? NBA is driving excitement and, and, you know, the, the whole, uh, even the Warriors are just brilliant at it. You know, they've got a whole team that figures out what to do in every second of downtime in game with, with sound, with lights, with, with noise, with activity, just so it, it, in that kind of environment, you're in, you're hyped from the minute you walk through the door until you, till you leave. And, and I understand that you can't, you know, you can't have a chicken dance across the bases, you know, every 15 seconds in a baseball game or, or, or shoot, you know, cannons into the crowd continuously that, that you actually have to play the game. But I saw some stuff go across uh, some some broker boards, and it caught my attention because what it was was, you know, why did you go to a baseball game in the first place? Not why did you buy tickets, but but what was it that first got you to go to a baseball game? And and the stuff that I read was reminiscent of you know my original experience. Uh, the first baseball game I went to, I think I was eight or nine years old. My grandfather took me. He, he meticulously score kept, you know, because the game for him wasn't just who was going to win, but inning by inning by inning, what were the pitches, you know, runs, hits, errors, uh, you know, who's, who, what, what was the strategy, all the, all the intricate, uh, thought process that goes into managing a game. Uh, that was what interested him. And that's what interested, you know, a lot of people in those days that was commonplace. You know, I, I was a kid. I had a glove. I wanted to catch a fly ball, and you know, I wanted to get a you know ice cream in a hat. Uh, and and you know, now you go and and everybody's you know in the World Series, you you, you kept panning the crowd, and and the people that were sitting absolutely on the fence line uh, were just looking in their cell phones. I mean, nobody's paying attention to the game, and and nobody wants to buy their kids ice cream because it takes an inning and a half to get it and thirty seven dollars. So it just, what is there to bring you to, to that particular event? But, but more emblematic, what is there to take you to any event? Well, that's, so, the, big, that's the big question, and, and, it, and it, drives, it, it brings up the question that I always ask people, right? Because they're, uh, the ultimate thing when I know I've hit a nerve in everything I do is usually if I post something or I write something or I do something, and people come back to me and, and I get these emails or like tweets or whatever I get. I get voicemail sometimes. Uh, you just don't understand or it, it, it's just different and you just don't understand. Anytime anybody tells me you don't understand, then I know I've hit a nerve, right? And with like, right. and with the things like the pricing, right? Because pricing has been a bug of mine for years, right? And I mean, again, I, I worked on the secondary market for years and years and years and I did all the super premium stuff. Um, so I, I get it. But the thing is, is I'm going... If everything is premium and everything is a premium priced experience, then nothing is premium. And all you've done is you train people that people like and it's a marketing thing, right? You've trained them to tell themselves a story, which is that people like me, people like us don't do things like this or we only do things like this on a special occasion. And if you're baseball, 80, you know, 81 home games a year, you can't afford to do that, right? To have people self-select themselves out, right? If you're basketball or hockey, 
41 games each at home, right? You can't do it, right? Um, MLS is, what, 19 games or some 20 home games. You, you can't do it, right? And maybe the NFL can because there are only eight games. But the thing is, is, like, you can't – your marketing should can't – it can't. Just it absolutely full stop can't be built around the idea that you have, are so exclusive that only, you know, super premium buyers can come because – you're trying to fill these stadiums that have 30, 40, 50, 60. In the case of the NFL, 70, 80, 90,000 seats. There, you know, there's just not that many people who fit that bill of goods. And, and but what you well, do is if they don't ever experience it live, like you said, right, or they don't have the experience of listen, listening to the, the play-by-play or something, then they just don't ever experience it, right? And the longer it goes without people experiencing what you're selling them, what you're offering them, the less likely it becomes that they give a shit later on in life. They just won't care. I mean, they might come. It might be a hit or miss thing, and they might like attend the game because a group of friends are, but they don't care. And the caring, the emotional, is where the chain of relationship, the customer relationship, is broken. And that goes back to what I think you and I talked about a little bit before. Uh, I, I think I read uh, in their annual report that that Ticketmaster sold 550 million tickets last year. So if you think about that, and, and you know, obviously that's globally, and I might be off on the number by it by a little bit. But, well, but is it, it also, is it play. sold or is it distributed? Because you know how everybody plays with these numbers as well. Well, regardless, I mean, the point I'm trying to get to is there aren't 550 million premium buyers, right? So, so premium... Is is very profitable, but any airline that rips out all their coach seats and puts in all uh, first class seats immediately fails, right? They 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 stratify the pricing strategy. You you can't run a restaurant on caviar and champagne exclusively. You die. You need people to come in and have a beer, and and this environment that everybody. Everybody, I'm not picking on anybody here. All all the players in this environment right now appear to be uh, one hit. How much money can we take out of every single transaction? And the problem that that's leading to is exactly what you were just describing. The the folks that used to really build uh, a lifetime of engagement with teams or bands or uh, you know that would follow. Springsteen around the country or the dead or whoever it is today that you would follow, don't do it because you can't afford it or it's too much brain damage or you just get picked to death every place you go. And then it leads to really, really screwy um, legislative pushes. And I, I saw a story come out of NBC New York uh, this week that really surprised me. And it was that they were doing a, some kind of a a dive on uh, speculative ticketing. And so they saw there were tickets for My Fair Lady for a particular day in row G. There were only two seats left, and they bought those. And then they went back out on the secondary market, and sure enough, they could find tickets for row G. And so they bought the tickets for row G on the, specul- on the, on the secondary market. And what got delivered to them was row F. And so see there, these, these scandalous resellers are out there that don't even own these tickets, and they're selling them at marked-up prices, and we own the last two seats in row G, and even though we bought the tickets 
that said row G on the secondary market to send us row F. And I thought, oh my God, they got one row better seats than they paid for. What, what, what's the, what's the story? What's it? They didn't get row Z. They didn't get, you know, come back in a week from Thursday. We're sorry. We don't have a ticket for you. They paid for tickets and the tickets they got were better than the ones that they paid for. And, and still they're banging a drum that there's a, a you know, a scandalous, girlless market out there. And, and so there's just such a disconnect between the way that the markets function and the way that people expect them to function and, and the stories that hook people right now that I think that it puts the, the entire continued smooth existence of these markets at risk of uh, you know, crazy litigation and crazy regulation. Now you're seeing it in Canada right now. You know, I mean, it, there, there was a time when you couldn't resell tickets for a profit. It was unlawful. A lot of those laws went away. Um, you know, now some players are advocating for more regulation to protect their franchise. Uh, other other players are are doing things that are, are you know suing suing the suing the the regulators themselves. Isn't isn't uh, Ticket Network suing? Uh, the state of New York or New Jersey right now, and you know, as a result, kept themselves sued. I don't know that they're suing them specifically, but what they are is they are, um, you know, they're. I think that, I think I may I may not correctly remember this exactly, but I believe that maybe it was New Jersey um, weakened the the uh, anti transferability provisions, and Ticket Network sued them, and in return, the state sued Ticket Network for speculative ticket listing. I think that's what's going on. It's either New York or New Jersey. That, and, that, that and, may be I right. Mean, somebody, somebody probably took uh, action against the new law that got was signed in New Jersey. Um, you know, I didn't, I didn't do the research on that before because I didn't know we were going to bring it up. But I know that uh, in yeah. in New York, as we're talking, they were um, the Attorney General of New York um, filed a suit against Ticket Network yesterday or the day before, or recently, in the past few days, uh, wanting to sue them over uh, speculative speculative ticket practices. And then Ticket Network has turned around and said that they should not be. Um, they're not responsible for the actions of third parties on their platform due to a 1996 law signed into signed by president Clinton at the time. Um, and so that's still playing out that that's the one I'm most familiar with because I was reading about it this morning. So, um, but the New Jersey thing, I know, I know stuff has been going on in New Jersey a lot. I know that, um, there's been a lot of people who've been like, well, if you sign this bill into law governor, um, it will have adverse effects that you are not planning for. Um, and they went ahead and signed it anyway. So, so now let's, let's, let's think about this, right? So we're talking about tickets and people are all up in arms about speculative listing of tickets. And, you know, people are all up in arms. You know, the, the fascinating thing about me is, is that the, the, the different major players in this space don't really communicate well. And I'm not talking about violative of antitrust. I mean, they just, they don't understand each other. You know, StubHub has a marketplace strategy, which is drive as much volume through our system as fast as we can, because we make our yield unsure. Um, Live Nation is a primary ticketer, has to be more protective of 
the, the face value of tickets because they serve the artists. Vivid Seats, you know, is trying to, to, to thread the needle between appearing to be the lowest price uh, by the way that they gained down the pricing in, in the initial search, but then, then jack it up and when you check out. I mean, everybody's got a strategy. None of them are the same. Nobody, nobody thinks about having any type of a common standard. And so, you've, you, again, you've just completed the ability to mass confuse the consumers and run them off, which is what, what I see happening. And then we talk about these things as if secondary market or speculative ticketing or broker intermediaries are all anti-American, horrible, you know, scurrilous players. And I just look with amusement at, at, you know, the stock market. I look at, I look at Tesla. Tesla has a giant short position established because they may or may not run out of money. Great company in terms of the product they make. If they let me a car today and I'm driving it around, I'm having a great time. But, you know, there's a, a, a rational reason that there's a giant short position built up in Tesla shares. Elon Musk gets irritated and says, I've got funding in place. I'm going to just buy the company and take it private for $420 a share. Stock goes crazy. He doesn't have funding in place. Stock goes back down the other way. Government gets involved. SEC gets involved. And what do they get involved in? They don't get involved in the fact that there's millions of people that sold shares they don't own on the bet that they'll buy them back cheaper. They don't get involved in the guys that have built every variation of option straddles. They get involved in, hey, uh, uh, Tesla, your chairman made a material false statement to the public that affected the price of the shares unfairly because it was materially false. And so he has to step down from being the chairman of the board and he's going to, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're suing him civilly. And, you know, within, within a matter of days, the shareholders of Tesla have to fork out $20 million in penalties to the SEC, and, and Elon himself has to fork out $20 million. Not a whisper about the people that bought the stock when it was cheap and still own it today, you know, and if they were to sell it today, sell it for a higher price, did something wrong. Not a whisper about the people that sold it when they thought it was overpriced, hoping to buy it back cheaper, but don't own it now and don't have it to deliver to whoever they're going to sell it to later until they buy it back themselves, did something wrong. That's all the way capitalism works. So we have capitalism in the, in, in the capital markets, but in the ticket markets, when, when people apply exactly the same game theories of how to make money, um, we've got just all kinds of hand-wringing and complaining. And, 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 and then to take from there that, that what seems to be happening from, from my lens, which is this massive concentration on extracting the most yield from the biggest events and ignoring everything else, you have to wonder what your source of new supply will become. You know, if, if, if everything is the World Series and nobody's going to go to the, the season uh, games, there, there's not going to be baseball because you can't run 82 games to nobody and make all your money back in the playoffs. If, if your entire focus is to put uh, Jay-Z and Beyonce out in stadiums, which they couldn't even sell out, uh, and, and take all the money there, well, then, you know, who's the guy that's going to come up with $25 tickets you know, in, in little rooms. I mean, 
there's there's a bigger market at play. Somebody has to think about grooming consumers. From the you know, I've got I've got stepkids that are 11 and 15, and the 15 year old drives me crazy every day. Can we go see Travis Scott? Can we go see Nav? Can we go see you know like this entire list of things I have no interest in seeing because you know I'm old now and the music's too loud and that's not my thing. But but he wants to see it, so you know I buy him tickets for it. Yeah, but, um, but there's no pipeline is the problem. I'm sorry? But you're right. There's no pipeline. It's like you either have to be Beyonce and Jay-Z or you have to be Taylor Swift or Pearl Jam, right? To And if not, you're out. You know, and it's like if not, they try to squeeze you into a venue you you don't fit. If you start to catch lightning in a bottle, uh, the perfect example is probably Greta Van Fleek. As we're uh, yeah, we, discussing well, we talked this. about them yeah, last we talked time. about them last time. But I or maybe you probably even mentioned the way that um, you know the Black Keys, right? Which were great in, in, in smaller venues, and then they started trying to fill them into to basketball arenas. And they couldn't quite re- reach it, right? But it ruined the experience for for people, right? And well, well, the other thing is, is look, you and I both came up with with going to stuff. So uh, all my friends, you know, that still go to concerts that are now like you know fifty, sixty, they they go to old guy concerts. They go to the Eagles. They go to whatever variation of the Grateful Dead is out there. They go to just like, you know, Neil Young. I mean, nothing wrong with that, but, but they're not also showing up in the little clubs. I'm like the outlier on that. I'll go to the little clubs and see new people because I like to be part of what's fresh. So uh, I've in the last maybe 18 months, I've gone to see um, uh, Lucas Nelson, Willie Nelson's son, nine times around the world because he's terrific. And then I see him twice with his backing band. Uh, they back Neil Young when Neil plays. So, so that's, that's an act that I saw in a club in San Diego a year and a half ago on a fluke because somebody said, hey, this guy's good. And I went, oh my God, he's good. And, and you know, I, I saw him in Paris and I saw him at the festivals and I saw him in Vail and I saw him, you know, wherever I happened to be and he was near, I just thought, you know what? Great night. I can go drink a beer and see this guy again because I really like what he's doing. Two years of of Lucas Nelson um, playing these rooms, and I keep thinking, boy, he's really good. I have a good sense of this. I've seen a lot of people make it. This guy, boy, how can he not make it? He sounds exactly like his dad when he wants to do one of his dad songs on his acoustic guitar. He does the best cover of uh, Tom Petty songs of anybody out there doing a, a cover. He's ending a lot of his shows now with American Girl. Um, he's got his own repertoire of, of really stomping, you know, guitar forward songs with a really tight band. This guy should start moving. No, not moving. Um, okay, spent a year working with Gaga and, and Bradley Cooper on Star is Born. And if you've seen the movie Star is Born, it's Lucas Nelson and the Promise and the Real that are the band that are backing Bradley Cooper in the in the in the movie when Bradley Cooper's being whatever the, his character is. Um, so a lot of press, a lot of attention, movies doing great. Yeah, the tickets are still 25 bucks. So it's really, so there's a guy that has every connection in the world, is getting newsprint, movies, television interviews, connected to the top people in the world, touring behind his father, touring behind Neil Young, backing Neil Young, doing solo shows, and 
you know, put out a really good album and not really moving. So how do you take the four kids in the middle of Jack Nowhere and get them out of Jack Nowhere, you know, and, and into a, you know, a hundred seat place, much less start the pipeline to put them in a, a 5,000 seat room. You know, if we take all the money with the, the big events twice a year and we don't leave anything for them, what is there to do with three years from now or five years from now? Well, that's it. You, Does that make any sense? It makes absolute sense because, the, you know, it's the finite game versus the infinite game, which I think I've probably talked about. I, I talk about it a lot, uh, either on the podcast or on my blog or in articles I write, which is the fact that um, it was a story that a guy called Seth Godin uh, t- told about talking to Bill Graham, the famous concert promoter, and um, when he was promoting Bruce Springsteen back in the 70s. And you know, that somebody was like, Bill, you could get easily $50 for these uh, Bruce Springsteen tickets that you're charging $25 for or $30 for. And his reply was pretty good because he's like, going, but if I take all $50 from them today, they, I won't have anybody to come to the show tomorrow. And I think the thing is, is that, we, you know, we've gotten very good at with spreadsheets and uh, quantifying everything to the point that, like, we forget that um, – yeah, you know, if you take everything from somebody at once, then they don't. There's nothing for them to come to come back to you with, right? And and it's not a sustainable business model to try to squeeze everything out of everybody every time, because right. eventually people start to feel like they're just a number on a spreadsheet. And I think that's what we have we see at play a lot in a lot of these places that are challenged. Um, baseball has done a very good job of making people feel like they're just numbers on a page, right? Um, and, and, you know, and the mystique and the magic of baseball have gone and on top of squeezing you for the money, they've, um, got out of the store, this natural storytelling element that baseball that has been so powerful, you know, because it used to be that like baseball was a novel, right. But now the announcers just sit there and they like talk about the drudgery and like the grind of, of the, of the 162 games. I don't know that it was any yeah. tougher to play 162 games when, you know, when we were watching as kids, right. Um, you know, I remember Dale Murphy and Andre Dawson when I was a kid, you know, playing for the Cubs and the Expos and the Braves, right. They were still playing 162 games, but there was romance, right. There was mystique and magic. And now there's just, everybody talks about the grind and, you know, and, and who, who wants to see a grind when you don't think the guys are going to be playing hard or like they're just going through the motions, you don't. Right. You don't you don't care. And that, and they've done a very good job of that. And I think that's being repeated over and over and over again. Well, it, but there's the, it, it's, but it's not only that. There's another thing. And, and the other thing is that if the focus becomes how much money can we make, you forget that there's a very real person that's handing over the money. And if the experience that they take away is, oh, my God, that's the greatest thing I ever went to. I had so much fun. You get them back. If the experience was, oh, man, you know, soccer. Wow. I went to six things, and, boy, these ticketing apps need work. You know, then, then there's a problem. That should be a really loud ringing bell when, when you see that. You, and, and, you and, and again, so. I try to, I try to, I try to, you know, I, I mean, I, I advise people in this space like you do, and I try to talk about sustainability, and I try to remember, I try to remind people that that 
people with money are just as weird as people that don't have any money. And I like I like Costco. I talked to you about Costco for a minute last. <laughs> if not weirder, yeah? but <laughs> you know, but Costco Costco since we spoke last time did something fascinating. Costco, as you know, um, sells their chicken for four ninety nine a rotisserie chicken. And, and it, it's in the very back of the store, and it's deliberately in the very back of the store because good luck getting in and out of Costco with one $4.99 chicken. It's the same reason they have a gas station out front. You're not leaving with just gas. And Costco, in order to continue to maintain that, is now in the process of building a, like a 300 million chicken facility in the middle of the country so that they can raise, process, and, and quality control these chickens, which are their, you know, their loss leader to get people in the store. And, and so what happens to me, and, and I know it's going to happen to me. I, I say it before I go. I say, I, I like having chicken, uh, rotisserie chicken for dinner tonight. I'm going to go get one of those Costco chickens. As long as I'm over there, I might as well fill the car up for gas because it's 20 cents a gallon cheaper. And then, you know, sure as hell, I'm going to leave with $450 of stuff I had no intention to buy. And I'm going to leave happy because I got the chicken and I saved 20 cents on each gallon of gas. You've obviously been I didn't to my feel house. Like I, got I bought the chicken and I walked out with $200 of stuff later. Yeah. yeah. I always say about Costco, you don't, you, don't, you don't spend less money. You just bring home more things. That's right. That's and, all. And you pay a cheaper per unit cost. And I, and yeah. I, and I think that um, – you know the stuff that you bring up about the about focusing on the customer is obviously something that I talk about all the time. Um, you know, and and, and it's uh, I think it's going to continue to take people to beat the drum about it. And I think you know, and I think that's the most important thing um, is to kind of constantly be focusing on the customer. And that's what companies that you just listed today uh, do a very good job of: Costco, uh, Tesla, um, Apple. Right? They all focus on the customer. It's not giving, you know, you're not necessarily giving me um, something that I knew I wanted, but then when I see it, I got to have it, right? And, and instead, I think too often in the ticket things, it's not thought through in a way that makes it go like, oh my God, I want people. It's like I heard Elon Musk go, we, want, we designed the Model 3 so that, people, so, so that people could fall in love with it and it would be something that they truly, truly loved. And I don't think that any ticket company uh, yet has ever approached how they sell and market tickets to their consumers and their customers with that thought in mind. I think the, it often feels like the only thought is how can we just um, irritate – it almost feels like they say how can we irritate people the most and still get them to give, their, give us their money. Um, and you know, no amount of red herrings and filler or bustering about the reasons that this happens is going to, to change my opinion on that. Um, because I know that it doesn't have to be this way because I mean, I've, I've used Grubhub, I've used, uh, all of these other mobile apps and, you know, and it's, it's just, you know, it's, it's just stupid. Um, but that's sort of the, the state we're at right now. Um, Eric, I want to thank you for taking the time to talk to, to the audience on the business of fun for round two. You, you, uh, when we get to round five, I'm going to give you, uh, uh, robe, just like on Saturday Night Live. Um, where can people find you these days, and what what are what you're up to? Well, what I'm up to right now is doing my very best to uh, advise anybody that'll listen to me about how to make the uh, experience better uh, and make the ecosystem better. And as always, I can be found on Twitter at Eric S. Fuller, 
and I can be found uh, at eric.fuller at yoseats.com. And awesome. I'm happy. Uh, I'm happy to hear from anybody that uh, that wants to talk. Awesome. You know, I, I want to see this. I, I want to keep going to stuff. My kids say you're going to be at Coachella when you're 95, and I say yes, I will if they keep running it. So, you know, I want to make sure this continues. That's my goal. Oh, uh, Eric, thanks so much for doing this again. I really appreciate it. Cool. Have a great day, Dave. Bye-bye.